HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, and you're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And I am absolutely so thrilled today. We have two of the absolute smartest wine writers in the country, and uh, I cannot wait to uh, introduce you to these guys. First, we have Ted Luce, a former editor of Wine Spectator. He's written about wine for Bon Appetit, Decanter, Town & Country, and many other publications. He currently has a column on Epicurious called Tasting Notes, and you can follow him on Twitter at Loose Lips, and he also contributes to the New York Times and Architectural Digest and Vogue about many other topics, not just wine, but just a, a slew of, of topics. So I'm guilty of being involved with the, the lamestream media. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for having me, sir. Excited. And then we also have Talia Baiocchi, uh, the wine editor for Eater.com, as well as a wine editor for the San Francisco Chronicle, contributed to Decanter and many other publications. Um, Talia is uh, one of the young bucks in the uh, wine industry um, and certainly someone who is changing the world in the way we look (laughs) at at wine. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Happy Um, to be here. One of the things that, that Talia covers is restaurant wineless, and I've never seen um, anyone who really just focuses on looking at, at wineless and reviewing wine lists, uh, much the way that someone might review a restaurant. Um, so what I do want to start with, especially since restaurants are a, uh, a topic that... We're at one. Uh, and we're, we're at one here. <laughs> very good Berlin, ones. Uh, sure. Is... Uh, what are some of your both of your favorite restaurant wine lists here in New York, and what do you what do you like about them? Take it take it away, Ted. <laughs> well, you know, I'm also restaurant wine lists are such a great topic because it's all about 
the personal vision of the sommelier and the people that do the wine direction and it can go so wrong too. Mm-hmm. You find people that like get wine lists that are sort of, you know, based on whoever just came that day to sell them wine. And I think that um, there's great places, the folks at Cook Shop and Five Points and their new place, Hundred Acres. I like their list. It's very, you know, it's diverse, but you also feel like there's some kind of actual personal interest behind it. My One of the tips I, I gave in an Epicurious column was always look for the outliers on a list. If you see a list with, you know... The unpronounceables. Yeah, the, if you see all Bordeaux and Burgundy and then you see one Finger Lakes, it's probably because that Finger Lakes Riesling is like a killer wine mm-hmm. that the wine director, the sommelier, loves. So I kind of look for the, the doesn't fit wine on every list. And I think, you know, there's a lot of those out there. I think the exciting thing right now is that I think that we're allowing, not not necessarily the, the consumer is allowing, but I think we're seeing the industry change to where the wine list becomes really a reflection of the culture of the restaurant in a, a really exciting way. And I think that before... I mean, now the wine world is so big and there's so many wines. And I think you're seeing a real vision from the person putting it together, not only a reflection of what the chef is doing in the kitchen, but that person's ideology. Um, And I think you're seeing that at a place like Reynard uh, in Williamsburg, Lee Campbell, who's put together this terrific sort of esoteric. And she's been, you know, kind of uh, criticized because... The list is esoteric. Um, I'm going tonight for dinner, actually, to rain, so I'll it's check great. it out. Yeah. It's great. And it's all these these really small French producers that you wouldn't necessarily see on your average wine list. Um, so I love Reynard. Um, I love Vinegar Hill House, because I think, again, like that wine list could not be anywhere else. Uh, Franny's for, you know, having this, you know, a lot of sort of Italy's kind of outside, off-the-beaten-path wines, and I think you've done the same thing at, at Del Anima. I mean, this is sort of just like a love letter to all of the kind of unloved wines that were unloved for a long time in Italy. You know, it's something that we struggle with a bit at the wine bar, at our wine bar and Fora, where <clears throat> my, my true love is is all those unpronounceables, as yeah. you said, those, those outliers. I think, to a certain extent, I've uh, maybe created a whole list of outsiders, and uh, Sometimes I, I feel like I've gotten a bit of criticism for mm-hmm. it not being as as approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder from you guys: Do you feel like uh, do you do you like to see a list that has some just easy to recognize? Do you think that's important for for consumers, um, or would you prefer something that that is truly what the uh, what the wine buyer is passionate about? Well, we're wine geeks, so of course we look for something. You know, we want to be like thrill us, give us something we've never seen. I think people do like to see a few familiar names but I always say why would you want the same selection as in your wine shop like you're going to dinner hopefully the chef is giving you something you can't get at home Mm -hmm. and hopefully the wine director is giving you something you can't get on the corner Mm -hmm. so I you know I think throwing in a few familiar names maybe makes people feel like they're kind of grounded but you know surprise people yeah, I think that um, one of the, I mean, it all comes down, to, I think, to wine service and who's on the floor and who's like really trying to help people kind of navigate a wine list that's really esoteric. I think a wine list can be totally out there, but it, you have to have someone there to say, hey, like, you know, this is what, you know, these wines from the Jura are like, and this is what orange wine is like. So they know what to expect. So if someone's not blindly going in there and saying, I don't recognize anything, what do I do? Yeah, I, think that's, I think that's great advice. And yeah, we do try to also have those. There's a Pinot Noir by the glass, yeah. so that someone can order. That so that someone can order Pinot Noir. It's still going to be in you know in in what we what we respect and, and think about with, with Pinot Noir, but mm-hmm. 
it's going to be something easy. It's, it's probably going to be like Pinot Noir from the Jura. <laughs> yeah. Or the Thurman region in, yeah. in Austria. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just got back from Languedoc yeah. and, and you know, southern France, sort of the other Provence. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, such a great area for value wines. And, you know, people haven't totally discovered it yet. And hence, there's just all these great, you know, some of them are varietally designated to give people that comfort. And others are, you know, named by the place in the European style. And I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on down there. I agree. Absolutely. You know, I think that Languedoc is uh, has a lot of uh, great vineyards that are undervalued because it's such a, a bad name for such a long time. So you find these startup winemakers. I think much like Bushwick uh, here in, in Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> right. people who can't you know can't necessarily afford a, a Fifth Avenue address or don't want to pay for it, um, and they're finding just uh, some really interesting terroirs, and they're able to to create some some fascinating wines because of the the land being undervalued out there. Yeah, Bushwick yeah. is very similar to the Languedoc. Yeah. Yes, but anyways, right. <laughs> You don't have Corbiere and Fougere and some of these great things, but someone will plant grapes <laughs> yeah, soon. Yeah. They're done everything else in Brooklyn. They're going to plant grapes somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. I don't doubt it. We have a, a whole garden upstairs uh, growing their honey and, and herbs. <laughs> grapes are next. Um, Talia, where, where have you been recently that, that you find is just a, an under-the-radar great value wine region? You know, it's funny because, uh, I mean, I've spent a lot of time this past year in America, and uh, I think people forget because we're always kind of looking to Europe, and I think, I mean, I'm guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that. Um, but I've been spending a lot more time kind of finding these, discovering these little gems in even places like Napa, which is not a place that you think you're going to discover something new because it's a very, you know, sort of developed place. Um, Willamette Valley, Oregon, I think that Pinot Noir is getting better and better there. And I think it's a product of some, maybe some tough vintages, but some vintages that I think um, sort of speak to leaner style of wine. Same is true for uh, the tr- the far Sonoma Coast. Um, I think there's really great Pinot Noir coming out of there. Um, and, and even, you know, you look at guys like like Dan Petrosky from Massacan and, and Enrico um, Bertoz from Arbe Garbe. And these guys are, you know, making Malvasia and Ribola in, in the Russian River Valley in Napa. And these wines are, you know, $25 a bottle. I think that we need to forget. We, we forget sometimes to kind of pay attention to our own country and. Are you for running me, for office in November? That yeah, sounds like, like part of your platform. Yeah, right. American wine. Well, I mean, it's the only thing that I'm really patriotic about, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, was, I just got back from Walla Walla, and I think Washington wine country, um, which is now expanded way mm. beyond Walla Walla. Essentially, like most of the eastern part of Washington is mm. like a wine region, it seems, based mm-hmm. on just getting back. It's kind of amazing. I think they should also be put, you know, there's a lot of new Appalachians, new AVAs are coming online, mm-hmm. and Washington is also really exciting right now. Yeah, and as a lead-in, obviously, to the next segment, I think that that uh, Sherry and San Lucar de Barmeda and, and Jerez, you know, are and even Monte Amarillas, like these are these wines are incredible. They're finally making a splash here, and I think it's way overdue. Our, you know, it's you know the first wine ever imported to the New World, and now we're finally figuring it out that yeah. it's great. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you guys about uh, how exciting domestic wines are. And on our new list mm-hmm. at La Picho, we're going to have about a third domestic wines. Um, so I, I think there's some really interesting things. However, I'm, I did want to ask you more about Walla Walla because mm-hmm. that is not an area that I'm particularly familiar with. Um, are you finding, uh, did you see in your recent trip that you have producers who are doing things similar to what you see in the Sonoma Coast or Santa Barbara where people are making more balanced handmade wines or are people still going for a certain amount of extra Traction up there. Well, I think definitely, you know, there it's warmer there, so you're going to get bigger wines to some extent. But 
I was surprised by a lot of things. First of all, a lot of Walla Walla wine country is actually in Oregon, across the border, which I didn't. You don't really realize till you get there, and you just find you're driving into Oregon to find you know a vineyard that's vinified across the line in Washington. Mm-hmm. But you know they're really known for their reds. But I liked a lot of whites too. I think they actually. I totally agree. I think that it's it, it really surprised me because I sort of thought of it as just okay, it's Syrah, it's Cab, it's Merlot, and those wines are the most distributed. But <clears throat> I had some really great Viognier, I had some great Chardonnay. Um, there's a lot going on there, and I think it's. Um, Oregon maybe has gotten more attention because Willamette is a small, contained, fantastic high-end area that essentially doesn't really produce any big value wines anymore. But Washington is like an open field, and it's just more wines are coming online all the time. It's kind of like Sonoma-Napa. Napa is one valley small, and Sonoma is five major valleys and you know all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how you have to think of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to bring the line of questioning back to uh, the restaurant industry. Uh, Ted, you have, uh, you've written in the past about um, your feelings on corkage in restaurants. I know as, as a wine professional, I love, actually love bringing bottles of wine. If I have a special bottle of wine to, to a restaurant, um, what are some of your um, guidelines and pet peeves when it comes to, to bringing wine to restaurants? Well, I always find it fascinating. I know Talia will weigh in on this when you get this kind of like shocked reaction, either on the phone or when you bring in your bottle, as if it was this crazy thing that you were proposing to bring your own wine. But some places, and the guys at Cook Shop, to cite them again, are really great. You know, they it's a twenty dollar corkage. They're just saying we want to make up for the markup that we're not getting, and that's it. After that, what you know? Why would they care if you want to enjoy something on your own? So I feel like it's kind of the diner's bill of rights that we should have that chance. Mm-hmm. But restaurants feel differently. Sometimes they say we spent all this time putting together a wine list. Why would we put this service glitch in there? What do you think, Talia? Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation. I think we all have a conversation. We talk about this a lot, but um, you know, a place like Brooklyn Fair, for example, which used to be BYO. And, you know, now I think their corkage fee is something like $75. And, you know, I understand that basically it's there so that you don't bring your own wine. Because who's who's crazy right. enough to bring their own wine if it's $75 corkage fee? Unless it's like DRC or something. Um, you know, I mean, it's a tough subject. I think, you know, there's certain places, like there's a lot of, of really inexpensive places that'll have a $35, $40 corkage fee. And I think that's kind of wrong. At the top end, at like, a you know, if you're talking about a three, four-star restaurant... You know, I mean, I get it. Like their markup is much bigger. They're really trying to to make that money. Their their margins depend on on wine. You know, the sale of wine. So I kind of get it. I guess I'm I guess I'm sort of it's a cop out because I'm kind of a centrist on this, and I think it's a case by case kind of thing. Um, I wish that inexpensive restaurants didn't charge as much for corkage, frankly. One restaurateur said to me, if it's a white Zin, it's really annoying because why yeah. are you doing that to us when yeah. we have a wine list? But, you know, if you bring in something, generally you get you a reaction. Should, like screen people. <laughs> exactly. <You laughs> this bottle's $50 corkage. <laughs> you get a reaction from them. If you bring in something interesting and classy, you'll see the, the, the demeanor change from the wine staff or the waiter sometimes if they can tell it's something like you know what you're doing. But, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a really cheapo bottle of wine, you get this reaction that's like, don't waste our time. Yeah. What do you think, Joe? I mean, is it annoying when people come in with that? You know, I, I, I actually do find it a little bit annoying if <laughs> someone brings in a really cheapo bottle of wine. Right. Um, that w- along with the corkage fee, we would give you something so much better exactly. than you're, than you're drinking. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a, what I think is a reasonable corkage fee. It's $25 at our restaurants. Uh, everyone knows that we're happy to. It's an unlimited. Some restaurants, you can only bring in two bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, at our restaurants, it's completely unlimited. 
And um, I, th- I think you linked to, Ted, you linked to a website that, I don't know if you put it together or if you linked to it, uh, and it, it listed all the restaurants in New York and their corkage, yeah. uh, the corkage fee, and then how good their stemware is also. Really funny. <laughs> which great I think another, great. That's a whole show, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, we, you know, we have great stemware. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you're, when you're washing and polishing stemware, those glasses break. And our, we have these like, right. beautiful, handmade, mm-hmm. you know, crystal glasses. Cool. And What's your, who is your producer of your stemware? Luigi Bormioli from, uh, from Milan. And, and they're really beautiful. And it's just, you know, if, if a glass broke and you, you didn't charge a corkage, that would be terrible. Um, but yeah, but I also really love bringing, bringing wine. Last night I went to Hakata Tonton with my girlfriend, great place, and brought a bottle of sake. Um, and you can bring sake to restaurants as well in the Soul Charge Good Corkage. point. Uh, but just to play devil's advocate. Please. You said it's part of the diner's bill of rights to be able to bring a bottle of wine. And, and I agree with you. I want to be able to bring wine. Right. Why would a diner not be able to, you know, bring a steak? Or, or bring their own rice, which actually I've, I've witnessed rice. that. <laughs> right. Well, Obviously, you're not going to. You make a point. But I think the, the, the thing that has always been said to me is, oh, we have to. Food costs are so high, we can't really make any money on food, so every restaurant pretty much makes money on the booze, which is fine. But I say, why does wine have to take the hit for food? <laughs> I just don't think, it's two separate things. I think, you know, wine is important enough to get its own consideration and shouldn't have to sort of pay for the entire restaurant experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's such a hard thing. To, it's a tough <laughs> subject. <laughs> I think the one thing that people don't realize, though, is that because of the health department restrictions, you actually... You know, you need to. Yeah, it, it was kind of a trick question. I apologize for that. <laughs> like, you can't. You can't bring food into you know into the kitchen. Um, uh, but but wine, it, it, there's no there's no there's no legal problems with with opening up a bottle of wine for there someone. There should be a legal problem with like bringing a, a box of Uncle Ben's. Yeah. As a, it was. Yes. It, I couldn't believe it. Literally, a guy brought Uncle Ben's rice to a restaurant and asked it to be cooked and then asked all of his food to have no salt. I was like, why are you even here? Why are you in a restaurant? Just, just, just cook the on. Uncle Ben's at home. It's cheaper. That's the guy. There's one guy like that in every restaurant probably. Yeah. <laughs> They're uh, out there. All right. Um, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with uh, Talia Baiocchi and Ted Luce on In the Drink here at Heritage Radio Network.
Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. And we're back with In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, here with Talia Baiocchi and Ted Luce, two of the absolute smartest wine writers in the country right now. Um, you can also follow them on Twitter at Loose Lips, L-O-O-S-L-I-P-S, and uh, follow uh, Ted's wine column on um, on Epicurious, it's called the Tasting Note, and uh, also Talia's on Twitter. It's at Talia Bioki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just good luck with that. <laughs> um, there's a picture of unicorn. Yeah, just find a picture of the unicorn. <laughs> Talia, what's wow. your obsession with unicorns? By I don't, the way? It's really weird. I don't even know. I mean, it's just sort of they're just these incredible creatures, and <laughs> I don't know. They, there's there's something about them I find like really hilarious, and I guess I just kind of went with it. All so right. it's everywhere in my life, the this, unicorn. This is something that we're going to try out new. It's going to be a little rapid-fire questioning, and then we're going to uh, taste a little wine and talk a little bit more about wines. So let's start, let's start off with Ted. Uh-oh. And Ted, what I want you to do is quickly, your gut instinct, perfect wine for the following scenarios. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Picnic. Rosé. On the beach. Riesling. Ooh. Clam bake or lobster bake? Um, Chenin Blanc from Loire. Nice. Bowling alley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> old Vine Zinfandel from Sonoma. That's actually a good idea. You want to get boozy. I think it goes, it's, it goes with you know, a, lot of, a lot of bowling alley food, I think. <laughs> Hot dogs. All right, Talia. Okay. Movie theater. Uh, Beaujolais. like that. I often bring more a crew. I assume sherry a crew, though. popcorn is really good. Sherry and popcorn. A crew Beaujolais, I assume. Yeah, crew Beaujolais. Yeah, of course. I once brought a bottle, to of, here. <laughs> uh, bottle of champagne, and it just popped so loud in the middle of the movie. That was terrible. <laughs> um, Taya, beach. Muscadet. Nice. Tastes like beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Hanging out in Bushwick with your friends. Ooh. <laughs> I guess pet nat, because you got to be kind of you got to be kind of cool, you know? What's cool from about Loire. Pat Nat? Oh, uh, Pat Nat from Loire. Yeah. <laughs> Loire is a theme. Yep. Yeah. Can't escape it. Any, so actually, anything from the Loire, like something really obscure, like Pinot d'Anis from the Loire, if you want to hang out in Bushwick. I think that's probably good. <laughs> I'd pick Chinon for that one. That's Chino. good, yeah. I love that. I love that. All right, guys. Um, so Ted was kind enough to bring some sherry for us all to taste. 
um, which is which is really exciting. We have two of my favorite producers, Lou Stau and Hidalgo. Um, what did you bring for us, Ted? Well, we have you know these are great producers. I think Lou Stau is probably my overall favorite uh, producer. Uh, I think their line is great. I think that they don't make a bad wine, pretty much. Um, and I think that there's, as I was saying, you know, before we got on the air, there's sort of ten producers or so that are imported in the U.S. in any quantity. So we're talking about, you know, you could kind of, you could at, at a home tasting, you could learn about the ten producers that have ninety percent of the U.S. market yeah. in pretty quick order. So this is a, it's a wine region to discover that you could actually get a handle on. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you talk about the Loire, we're talking about. I mean, there are thousands of. You know names to know, but in this area, although it's a complicated way, it's complicated process to make it. You could actually get a handle on these. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. You know, I think there's great value in these wines as well, and certainly when you open them, they can last for for quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's really tough to spend more than thirty dollars on a bottle of of sherry, and that'll last you a few weeks too. So this is interesting too because the almond sinista line um, for Lustau, I think, is one of these. You know, it really kind of got sommeliers interested in, in, in sherry um, because you had this almond sinisa line, you had Hidalgo's Pastrana, you had Le, the Lobota wines. So this comes from smaller producers and they're like very small lots. Um, and they're, it's like the, you can think of it the same way that you think about champagne. So like these were growers essentially and, and Lustau went in and said, okay, well, we're going to bottle this stuff and, and put it out there. Um, so it's super small production, and then this is obviously Manzanilla Amontillado. So um, you can think about sherry on sort of a continuum. So it starts as Manzanilla and then eventually becomes Amontillado. When that actually happens and the distinction is very blurry, it, it depends on the producer. Um, but basically it's just, you know, I don't know, it becomes at a certain point, it goes from Manzanilla to Manzanilla Posada to Manzanilla Amontillado. That's really interesting. I, think. I, li- I like the medium browns with sherry. That's yeah. what I call everything from there uh-huh. through Palo Cortado, um, you know, up to PX, up to the sweeties. I like the sweet ones too, but I really like the ones that are complex with maybe a hint of sweetness, but are essentially the sort of whole middle range because I think they're mm-hmm. the food matches ultimately. Yeah, and it's you know, Fino's great with almonds. It's great as an aperitif, and the PXs of the world are great for. You know, any dessert ice cream, they're great mm-hmm. on, in, you know, in Spain, they put it on ice cream, which mm-hmm. is amazing. But I think this whole medium area is an awesome food matching zone. What would you pair this one with, Joe? Well, you know, I think you said one thing that, that's really great and something that I think not everyone realizes is that there's sometimes a hint of sweetness in these wines. Mm-hmm. But when you have really good sherry, they tend to be very, very dry. Um, uh, I think a lot of people think of sherry as something that that is a sweet you know, the grandma's Grandma. sweet, yeah. sweet cherry, right? Um, but this wine is a dry wine, but because of, of the caramel, nutty flavors, um, it, I think it gives you kind of an impression that it's going to be even sweeter than it is, uh, but it's super dry. Um, you know, sherry's really, really versatile. I think I, I like this with, with like, uh, with, with meats, with grilled meats. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very savory. Hen, you know. Stuffed hen. Stuffed hen? What do you stuff? What do you stuff a hen with? <laughs> Uncle <laughs> Ben, tell me. <laughs> and pour a bottle of sherry in the middle. Um, on the grill, you could actually put like a Cornish hen on the grill yeah. and like stuff it, because the smoky flavor is amazing. These yeah. nutty, nutty tones are incredible. I think they're completely. I would eat that. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, Ted, when are you cooking that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I had a grill, if I had outdoor space, I would. All right. So what is the? What's the second one you brought for us, Ted? Well, we have Hidalgo, and let me just um, let's grab this one. We've got a Paulo Cortado, um, and that's a great 
another great category, and it's firmly in that sort of medium brown camp. It's another like blurry category. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it almost it almost doesn't really pay to know too much about how they're made because sometimes there are exceptions and there are these that wines a blur. To know Paulo Cortado is to love it, though. Mm, true. What do you guys get out of this one? I actually had this one last night, <laughs> among other sherry. Yeah. So this is too close for comfort in a way, but. Uh, it's really light for a Paulo Cortado, um, and it's kind of got like funk. I mean, you're getting a lot of floor character yeah. in the wine, the yeasty floor thing. Yeah, totally. And sometimes in Paulo Cortado, you're getting more like of an Oloroso character, which is more just kind of those nutty oxidative flavors. And this has more of that kind of like saline, funky, yeasty thing, like you said. I love it with one of those Spanish soups with almonds in them. Oh yeah, oh, yeah like a white gazpacho. Yeah, situation. I think that's that. What are you about that? I, I think, think I it. think that'd be a great pairing. Um, you know, I, I absolutely love Palo Cortado. That would be the, if I only had to drink one sherry, I would be uh, love the Palo Cortado. Um, but, you know, sherry along with Riesling we were talking about before we started, those are probably the two darlings of the sommelier community. Right. What do you think, uh, why do you think that there's such popularity amongst industry professionals? And do you think that's translating to the drinking public? Well, it's complexity for money, I think, ultimately. You know, the Riesling, they, you know, since the 70s, everyone, there's always a movement, will Riesling take off? And it never does. And some of us are thankful because that means it just never got expensive. Loire is like that, too. Loire is a big sommelier darling, and, you know, we've already mentioned it. We've already shouted out to it a few times. These are the areas that give you an enormous amount of complexity for not that much money because they haven't been adopted by, like, crazy collectors who are buying it at auction. Yeah, hopefully this uh, this radio program doesn't get broadcast to China because if they find <laughs> exactly. out how good Riesling is with their food, yeah. we're all screwed. Exactly. They That's all so they buy Bordeaux and Burgundy, and you really don't want to drink that with Let a lot of... Let them keep buying Bordeaux. <laughs> Chinese That's food, That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that also, I've, I've, I mean, sommeliers love the underdog, right? But also, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about kind of the, the, the slow evolution of the American palate and how, I mean, you go to the lettuce section at the, at Whole Foods and you're like, oh my God, it's like radicchio, you know, dandelion greens. And now people love Negronis and our palate for wine is changing as well. And I think we're more open to bitter flavors. We're more open to super savory flavors. And I think you're seeing wines, you know, getting more attention that didn't before because of this change. I think that's like, I think Sherry has a, a had a way in because of that. Yeah. No, I think the bitter thing is wine writers always have a palate that tends toward the acid and the bitter. It's, yeah. just, it's just how sweetness. Some is, of them. <laughs> sweetness generally is an entryway into wine. People discover, hey, that's something that's like a sugar delivery system that's kind of interesting. And then as you know more, you head toward bitter and acidic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at what we were drinking even, you know, 20 years ago in America and what people wanted. They were, they, I mean, the, the, and, it, and this is, and I feel bad for Turley wine sometimes because they had this image of these huge wines that were made in the early 90s and mid 90s. Now the style is totally different at Turley, but that's what people wanted. They wanted 17% alcohol with residual sugar. And that's, it's like Frankenstein yeah. wine. But now everything's kind of coming around and I think people are more open to, you know, really dry Riesling, which is super mineral. And, you know, savory cherry. California is coming around, too. It's just taken a little while. It takes The wine world is a slow-moving ship, so yeah. turning the direction is, is gonna, essentially going to take 10 years to we get... We hit an iceberg, too. We did. We hit an iceberg. <laughs> and I think you really hear it in California now. You know, in the old days, I would come, and people would tell me, winemakers, come, and I, I'd taste wines with them, and they would say how, how um, extracted, rich, big their wines were as a point of pride. Now the word is fresh. 
no matter what you're making, mm. you come and you say to a wine writer, it's fresh, because freshness connotes acidity, and that's what writers, and I think part of the public, and it's changing toward that, are, are always looking for. Everyone wants to have a fresh wine. Yeah, that, I think that's a good point. And as a, as a wine buyer, I always look for acidity, because I think it makes me look better at my job. I think <laughs> if you have a wine that has acidity, the food is going to taste better, and you're going to want to keep drinking the wine, because your mouth is watering. However, I find that when I talk to guests, I never say the word acidity. acidity. And that, that, that guests and, and most people who are right. drinking wine who aren't wine professionals think of acidity as a terrible, horrible, really? bad thing. And hence, thing. fresh is our now euphemism yeah. for acidity. Basically, yeah. I think, is what in wine notes you see companies writing. Yeah. And that's what they mean. Mm-hmm. In fresh, or I say crisp a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that doesn't always work for Acid a red wine. it sounds like a lemon yeah. puckering. You're not going to, you know, luck it like the experience, yeah. but... All right, Ted, so what is this last sherry that you brought for us? We're back to Lustau, because I think they're so great. This is their deluxe cream, and my next column at Epicurious, which is coming out, I think, October 1st, is going to be about matching sherry to dessert. And it's not all going to be sweet sherry. It's going to be some some of these medium browns, as I call them, are going to be in the mix, too. But I think you've got to have a sweetie every now and then, too. What do you guys think about this? It's funny because cream sherry really gets sort of like, you know, the bad rap and the, just the blended cherries in general. So, I mean, cream sherry is essentially PX mixed with Oloroso. And uh, obviously there's Harvey's Bristol cream, which is maybe like the, the sort of white zin of the sherry world. And um, so, I mean, but but cream sherry can be absolutely delicious. This is really light and delicate. You don't really think about this is sort of. If this were a Riesling in terms of sweetness, you wouldn't think this is a crazy sweet Riesling. It's not heavy, that's mm-hmm. for sure. I like This has a lot of delicacy, mm-hmm. and it's really fruity. It's really fruity. I think that the uh, uh, a high-quality cream sherry is, in a way, like uh, a sweet champagne. It's something that there, there aren't too many of them left, but if you find... I know, like, Bill Carsamon is still making the demi-sec, yeah. the demi-sec champagne. Um, but there's certainly really great applications, even though it's something that with, you know informed wine drinkers might be going out of style a little bit more. Um, but I, I think that is delicious, and I, I totally it. agree with you. Uh, and you want and something, cheap. and it's cheap. Uh, These are all cheap. I mean, yeah. I, I, you cannot find a sherry more than $30, as far as I, as far I know, in terms of suggested retail. The one, that, the one that can be over that that I absolutely love is this line called La Bota, Ah. From Bodegos. Equipo Navasos, nice. yeah. Equipo Navasos, yes. And uh, they're absolutely fantastic. When we opened you know, we opened up Lertuzzi, I bought all of this, you know, La Bota cherry because I love it and I tried to drink it and uh, um, no one would drink it. Maybe it's just the fact that we're an Italian restaurant. I ended up giving Talia a bottle for her birthday. One year. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I still have it. And and they're tough to find now. I mean, this is sort of like major, sort of the top of the geek line in, in That's the cherry pretty, world. Yeah. Yeah, so it's they're hard. You can find it, get it for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also an interesting thing too about cherry in, in terms of making its way to the wine world. I think the cocktail world was really a gateway um, mm. for sherry. And I think that you you had, you know, back in 2007 or even a little bit before that, you had bartenders kind of, you know, sherry was sort of a, a revival for them because, you know, back in, in the 19th century, sherry was a big part of the barman's repertoire. And I think that sort of made its resurgence. And then you had slowly but surely sommeliers starting to pay attention to sherry through like mixologist, quote unquote. It's a great cocktail ingredient, among yeah. other things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and I'm sure, I mean, I don't know if you're doing any sherry cocktails right now, but it's, uh, you know, it's a great sort of like, you know, it's a great replacement for vermouth for a lot of different things. Yeah, and I find that it's a, a little bit more stable than, than vermouth. I think vermouth mm-hmm. can be, you really need to, to be careful with it. You need to refrigerate it. 
You need to. It doesn't have the kind of shelf life uh, of sherry, and, and I mean, especially with the with the lighter style of sherry, you do you do also need to be careful. They don't have the the best shelf life, but um, it's something that doesn't cost a lot. And I'm a big sherry fan as well. And also, guess what? You can open it and then you do put the cork back in, and it's going to hang out for quite a long time. Yeah. So this is a. It's if you're thinking about value, you're never gonna you're never tossing it because it's over the over the hill. Yeah, if you're like, if you're a Manhattan drinker, I mean vermouth is sort of the plight of the Manhattan drinker because you just you can you know there's most of the time I'd say maybe like six times out of ten you're gonna you're gonna have vermouth that's past its prime in your drink. So that's, that's right. kind of a bummer. You know, we had Alan Katz on the show uh, last week, and he said that I asked him what like what do you when you go to a bar like what's the what's your one indicator if you know, this is a bar that knows what they're doing or is not. And he pointed out, uh, I always look at their vermouths. If they have a good selection of vermouths and right. they're paying attention to it, that lets me know that they're going to be, uh, that that's probably someone who's paying a little bit more attention. I'm going to pose the same kind of question for both of you for a wine list. When you open up a wine list, how do you know if these guys are are, 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 are doing something good, if they, if they know what they're doing or if they're just kind of phoning it in? Well, I, I'm a fan of Cabernet Franc. That's kind of my, you know, my favorite grape. That's my desert island grape. It's kind of a quirky, high acid, a little bit finicky and strange red grape. And I think that when I find Chino or some other Cabernet Franc, I think that's usually, it tends to be the best value on a wine list. And since I'm always looking for that, that's a great indicator. Something from Chino, something from Cab Franc elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know, it's hard because there's a lot of, I think that the level of, of wine lists today is so much higher because we've got really great importers. There's so much available in the market. So I think it's a lot easier to put together a good wine list. Um, I think that really the, the it, it comes down to your definition of a good wine list. And I think it, it comes down to how, you know, it fits with the restaurant. And you have some people, I think, that are putting together stuff that's obscure for the sake of obscurity. And doesn't necessarily fit with sort of the culture of the restaurant. So you kind of have to, it's so this isn't really an answer, but I guess it's sort of thinking about the wine list in context. Um, and, and whether it's just the sommelier kind of just doing whatever the sommelier wants to do or really thinking about the food, really thinking about the place. Um, I mean, Cabernet Franc is a great thing, Beaujolais, obviously, um, because, you know, you, it's stuff that you're seeing the sommelier kind of, you know, having an eye for value. Um, and those are uh, two great examples of that. Another thing is that I don't want, no matter how good the wines are, I don't want to see a wine list that's 25 pages because guess what? I'm not there to read a book about how many things you have in your cellar. I would mm-hmm. rather have 25 amazing wines that were actually handpicked and that you want to hand sell me through a conversation. I don't want to read through everything you have in your cellar. I mean, who, who even has time for that, even if you know about wine in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I always when I'm putting together wine lists, I always think about quite a few things. Number one, does it complement the food? Because mm-hmm. the food, at the end of the day, is, is really the star. And, and the wine, for me, is just the, the sauce that the chef doesn't really ever get to taste. Mm-hmm. Um, so does it complement the food? Is there a range of, of styles that everyone who's looking for the style that they want can find it? And does it represent a good value? Those are all important things. But then also some of the things that you brought up before, does it have a personality? Is it, is it saying something? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's functional stuff that a beverage director looks like. Yeah. You know, like, is it is it going to make us a little bit of money? Is it, does it work with our physical space and, and that kind of things? But really, you know, as a, as a diner, uh, is it good for the food? Are there un- enough options and it doesn't have, does it say something? Um, and so, you know, we always try to find something that, that, that has a, has a wine list, that, a wine list that has something to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it can be done short and sweet. Uh, usually a good, yeah. a good team can put together a P 
pithy, short and sweet wine list. I think. Yeah. Can I yeah. can I ask you a question? Yeah. Sure. What are your What are your favorite wine lists right now? Oh, um, well, I love drinking at uh, Vinegar Hill House. I mm-hmm. think they have a really cool list. Mm-hmm. Um, diner because I just I love the fact that they'll. Uh, They'll they'll get behind something and and kind of just explore it. Like I think you you were, you were mentioning uh, Cabernet Franc before. They really love Cabernet Franc there. <laughs> I got to go back there. It's yeah. a great restaurant. Um, Gramercy Tavern. Oh my God, they have such good, good values. And they just you know it's it's a wine list that uh, they'll have something for everyone and it'll be really good. Like you could bring your your aunt Sue from like the middle of the country <laughs> and she'll find something that she wants. And they to could be phoning it in. Those guys have the reputation, but they're not phoning it in. And kudos to them for that. Oh my god, everything there is good. I know there's a lot. And oh my god, Casamono. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Dying to get Ashley on the show. It's the best Spanish wine list I've ever seen in Spain or good New York stuff. or anywhere in the world. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Spain is really sort of underrepresented in, in, especially in New York, you know? Yeah. But even then, yeah. that's despite the tapas craze, which is, I mean, I live in Chelsea and there's a tapas, a really good tapas restaurant on every single block <laughs> near my house. It's a little weird, but I think we haven't quite seen the right, the right importing combination of getting the wines here in the first place mm-hmm. for these places to, to get them on the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's really important. And it's something that, that Talia brought up, like the, the importer and distributor, really are very, very important in what what you're ultimately drinking. I've been to a few places, like Croatia, for instance, where there's some really exciting and interesting wines, but they're not very well represented by importers who know what they're doing. So when you have someone like a, like a Joe Dresner or Kermit Lynch or, or Rosenthal who bring in not only great wines and have something to say about it, but have a staff of people who can really speak about them intelligently, um, I think that really helps to promote the region. So, yeah, I'm excited to see. I think there's a lot of great things going on in Spain, and so that, that's mm-hmm. a really good point. Yeah. Uh, no, Spain is really exciting right now, and, and obviously, I mean, for most people, all they know still is Priorat and Ribera del Duero, and nothing beyond that. Maybe Albarino, but, you know, Galicia is this whole new world right now, and obviously, Jerez, San Lucar, Monte Mariles. All right. Thank you guys both. Thank um, you. No, it's thank, really fun. Thanks so much to uh, Talia Baiocchi. Um, again, follow her at Talia Baiocchi. Figure out how figure out how to spell that on Twitter <laughs> yeah. at Talia Baiocchi and Ted Loose a little bit easier at Loose Lips. Uh, that's on Twitter. Um, and please uh, definitely do read read their columns on on Eater and Epicurious and every other publication. <laughs> and dr- drink sherry in the morning. It turns yeah, out to be great. And I uh, hope to hope you guys tune in again to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Joe Campanelli for In the Drink. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.